Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate kicks off our seventh full season with author Simon Reynolds to discuss Retromania, pop culture's addiction to its own past. The book came out 10 years ago, and Nate and Simon debate whether or not the weight of pop music history is as heavy in 2020 as it was in 2010. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Simon Reynolds, the author of Retromania, Pop Culture's Addiction to Its Own Past. Simon, welcome. Thanks for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure. This book made a big impression on me when it first came out, and I'm looking forward to discussing it with you a decade after its publication, or not quite a decade, I guess, but uh, close. Now we can look back at the teens as well as the knots. But the fundamental argument of your book, which definitely jived with what I was feeling intuitively was that in the beginning, in the introduction, you say, what I'm imagining isn't a cataclysm so much as a gradual wind down. This is the way pop ends, not with a bang, but with a box set whose fourth disc you never get around to playing and an overpriced ticket to the track-by-track restaging of the Pixies or Pavement album you played to death in your first year, year at university. If the pulse of now felt weaker with each passing year, that's because in the 2000s, the pop present became ever more crowded out by the past, whether in the form of archived memories of yesteryear or retro rock leeching off ancient styles. So that's kind of the thing we want to discuss is, do you think that's still true? Um, I think everything that I write about in Retromania is still going on. Um, there's still a lot of reissuing. There's, there's you know, festival lineups um, are overcrowded with what people call legacy acts, you know, either acts that are never, you know, are very old and never stopped playing or bands that are reu- reunited. Um, 
partly because there is this sort of lucrative circuit now for reunion acts, um, there's a lot of younger bands who music is a kind of pastiche or pick and mix of things from the archives. Um, and beyond music, there's, you know, uh, TV reboots and um, endless film franchises based on, you know, quite old um, comic books uh, or beloved films from the 70s you know that just endlessly get get a new uh, a prequel or a postquel added to it um so everything i write about in the book is still going on it, it doesn't feel as oppressive to me it feels like there's quite a lot more really contemporary sounding music and um you know very very sort of digital sounding music that feels 2010s in its its vibe um so I, I wouldn't say I'm quite as gloomy as I was when I wrote the book, but at the time of writing the book, it felt like we were inundated by the past. And it, it was this sort of sense of, yeah, as I put it in that intro, of being um, crowd, the present being crowded out. There were all these things competing for your attention. Um, and a lot of it was this sort of, you know, people uh, dealing with these new online archives, essentially. It's like pub kind of amateur a lot of them were kind of amateur archives like youtube is a kind of amateur archive um i mean obviously youtube has a lot of very current this minute kind of things on it as well but a lot of youtube's content and it's, it was especially seemed to be the case in the early days of youtube was like old crap <laughs> you know that someone you know someone did a comp you know someone's done a compilation of beloved tv commercials of from 1970s uk or clips from old pop shows you know um strange little documentaries or that had never been shown since they were first aired in the, in the 70s or 80s so there was all this archival riches really riches but kind of riches that you could get lost in and uh that that's still going on but i feel i, I feel a bit more excited about current music or at least i i, I feel that there is music that feels current you know it feels like very now and and this will be a little bit past day by the time this show airs but just yesterday we had a controversy on twitter over billy eilish the pop pretty young pop singer not knowing who van halen was and and boomer and gen x are van halen fans just being aghast uh what did you make of that did you follow that little kerfluffle at all it's funny um in in my world on on on, on my sort of twitter feed and facebook everyone's like i haven't seen anyone like making fun of it they're all like why should you know who van halen are and a lot some of them are, are like old you know new waivers are like van halen was shit anyway you know so i haven't seen anyone you know maybe i move in different circles uh I'm, i was i was slightly surprised you had never heard jump you know because that's on the radio still and it's like an all-time american classic but um yeah, why would she know who Van Halen are? I mean, she's probably heard them, but the that you know the name has not stuck for whatever reason. Yeah, she's a completely different generation. Um, I think we've probably all seen this tweet where someone says it's like someone in Van Halen's day, you know, not knowing who Benny Goodman or some sort of swing jazz artist was. Uh, that is the time difference, you know, and um, that seems, you know pretty on the money um why would a 17 year old or an 18 year old whatever she is now uh you know be aware of van halen uh particularly uh, exactly. it didn't it, it didn't I, seem like um you know i thought i think i haven't seen the clip but i got the impression that she was kind of 
saying it in a kind of amused or self-deprecating way. It wasn't like some gotcha, like where, you know, uh, someone caught her out. You know, you say you're a musician, but you yet you've never heard of Eddie Van Halen's legendary tap, uh, you know, fret tapping guitar <laughs> technique. You know, uh, you know, she. I wouldn't say she's the modern Van Halen, but you know, she's from LA. Uh, I live in. South Pasadena, and I think Van Halen came from Pasadena. She's sort of in the, you know, she's modern LA music, uh, making making music. Actually, funny enough, with her brother, the you know Van Halen had two brothers in, didn't they? And and so, you know, she they're doing interesting new things. They're they're very involved in the now. You know, they they their success is is uh, is using the latest online media you know through uh tiktok and all these ways that kids find out things my youngest kid is crazily into billy eilish so you know it's um it's a bright new tomorrow where van halen are a little footnote and why should you know why should they care yeah and and <laughs> good for I, them. I took it uh, yeah, I took it as a good sign uh, that your arguments, not, not that I'm against your arguments, but just that, you know, you were worrying a bit in the book that the past was crying out the future. And it seems like this current generation of kids who, as a parent, it's it's interesting, they have such a different relationship with popular culture than we had as Gen Xers. I know you were in Britain and I was in the States growing up, but, you know, we were soaking in, in decades of reruns and old movies that were on TV that we you know, might have anywhere from three to 50 channels, but still you were flipping through and you're going to see Humphrey Bogart and, and you're going to see Benny Goodman and you're going to see Frank Sinatra. And kids today, everything they see is pretty much selected. And and so I'm actually sort of worrying that the, the musical history is being lost for the new generation. But um, let's let's stick to the book, though. And, and how much you, of the... We you hear different stories. Like, like for instance, uh, often anecdotally through friends and seeing what their kids into you you hear stories about how a particular kid like you know 11 or whatever is just crazy about the beatles and no and just just listens endlessly to the beatles so i think it's all there for them to discover i I suspect what it is 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 this thing um i write about in a book called a temporality where the chronology of music is all jumbled up and and things that are very old you know that might pop into their world through whatever means um, I sort of jumbled up with things that are very present, you know, and, and, and they don't necessarily have a sense of the chronology of rock history. When I was getting into music, it was a fairly simple chronology. You know, it's like rock and roll, the Beatles and the Stones, uh, you know, glam rock, Bowie, um, psychedelia before that, and then punk. And you could sort of understand, you know, there's only three or so stages of rock history that you could get a basic, you know, you, you could understand it in a paragraph, you know, uh, really, and a few song examples. But now the music history is so sprawling uh, and things that have been left out of history have been readmitted, you know, like disco is very, you know, celebrated now as, as an important era of music and prog rock has been rehabilitated. It's no longer this thing that, you know, punk and new wave said was, a complete wasteland i grew up with that idea that prog was just completely shouldn't go there um i think it's a much more complicated varied sense of music history that you know you kind of have to do a little bit of work if you want to understand it but people pick up on bits of music perhaps some billy Eilish fans will will uh, actually listen to van halen because of this whole you know this whole silly kerfuffle about it and maybe some van halen fans will listen to billy Eilish as well i i wanted to start 
our first musical snippet with a band from the Knots, the early part of the Knots, maybe kind of a 90s band as well, that to me is the last gasp of what I would formally consider rock and roll. One of the last times that a guitar bass, or no bass, a guitar drums combo with vocals broke through into the pop mainstream. And now their song uh, Seven Nation Army is a staple at stadiums around America. But I wanted to play um, the White Stripes, We're Going to Be Friends. Is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, walking blues, climb the fence, books and pens, I can tell that we are gonna be friends, I can tell that we are gonna be friends, walk with me, Susie Lee, through the park and by the tree, we will rest upon the ground. And that was the White Stripes, who were uh, garage revivalists, and 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 to my mind, at least, kind of the last gasp of formal rock and roll making an impact in the pop scene. Do you think that's an apt way to view that movement? Yeah, I mean, the White Stripes are a difficult one for me because, on the one hand, sort of ideologically, from the viewpoint that I I put across in Retromania, you know, Jack White would be a culture criminal, you know, uh, but. They made some great tunes, uh, you know. Everyone loves Seven Nation Army, and and, and the videos look really cool, and and uh, you know. So there's sort of something undeniable about them. So in a sense, um, they they set back the, the cause of musical futurism is definitely set back by them. Um, but you can't deny the talent, you know. And that's one of the most difficult things for me as a critic of retro culture is when i'm seduced by it you know like for instance uh someone like bruno mars a lot of his music is pastiches of disco or 80s funk or whatever but you can't deny the contagiousness of, of those songs on the radio so um it's it's a it's a tricky one you know some of my favorite artists um of the of the 21st century are actually kind of retro archival artists like the artist um, Ariel Pink's Haunted Graffiti. It's all based around old kinds of music that have been very cleverly reworked and, and you know, um, full of references. And you listen, you go, oh, that drum roll is like off a, um, a Jerry Rafferty song from 1978, or this one sounds like Fleetwood Mac, you know. Uh, and and um, there's another group from LA called Heim, three, three sisters who do music that's, um, actually influenced by a different phase of, of Fleetwood Mac than, than the one that everyone else rips off, which is their mid-80s sound, you know. And so, um, but they're brilliant, you know, they, they, the songs are brilliant, the playing is brilliant, the singing, uh, the lyrics are, you know, coming from the heart. So you can't reject it if it's actually good. Uh, I think um, it's more exciting for me, you know, the whole thing that Jack White is associated with is this thing of deliberately recording using you know, the technology that the Beatles or the Stones use, you know, this sort of valve amps and this sort of very kind of period antique approach to recording where you get this, the actual sound they had in those days and you work with the limitations of recording that time. And that's, that's uh, I find that a bit of a strange thing to do. You know, I think that's that's not what the Beatles were doing, you know, or the Stones or Led Zeppelin, you know. They, they, were, they were using the latest state of art technology of their time and also responding to the black music of their time. So I, I yeah, I think that I, I, I kind of, uh, yeah, I think you're right that the white stripes are the last blast of something, but it's almost like a sort of, um, 
Yeah, it's very much like a nostalgia review or something. What do you make of arguments that other rock bands from the nineties or the from the knots that that their sound, I think you touch on this a little bit in the book, is so modern though, where they're they're sampling John Bonham's snare drum. You know, you get a drummer in there who's probably a fine drummer in a club, but can't get that killer timber i mean not many people could maybe no one else could get john bonham but they sample you know that they replace every drum hit with a with a sample from another drummer and then sync it up to Mm. the to the click track so mercilessly i I watched a youtube video recently where rick beto was talking about you know the time variations in a led zeppelin track where bonham will speed up and slow down charlie watts is pretty infamous for this apparently for people who try to mix the stones with click tracks but that when you get a 90s band i don't want to or a knots band i don't want to name any names in particular but they've so mercilessly regularized it that the beats actually sound more like a house track in a way than than a rock yeah. track. do you feel like yeah. that's killing rock or contributed to killing rock um i think it makes a sound that i don't like and 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 um once you sort of you know like i think a lot of people instinctively could tell there's something different about like rock music made in the 21st century and rock music like aerosmith or or zz top or you know the stones is a great example um start me up you know where if you listen to start me up it it, the groove is so so, sort of ragged and sloppy yet 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 tight at the same time it's sort of sloppy and tight at the same time and that comes from it being a human you know they're like an engine but they're like the components of the engine the rhythmic engine are human beings uh, responding to each other in real time and as music got more and more computerized and and fed through things like pro tools and all these studio uh platforms and software um yeah it does get into this weird thing where it sort of sounds like rob but the the essence of it is gone, you know. Uh, a lot of emo bands have that sound where the, the vocals have been a bit auto-tuned and they've been very compressed. And um, as you say, every you know they've taken every drum hit and they've gridded it, put it, they plotted out on a grid, so it's exactly, you know, there's no elasticity in the groove, and every hit is the same level of of of, of force, and so it does sound more like a drum machine. And uh, so it's like this sort of ghastly simulacrum of rock, but it actually, actually parallels what goes on in the movies as well. You know, where a whole a whole movie is put inside a computer, and they change the color balance, and they tint people, you know, different bits, and they edit things together, and you know, it's sort of like what you see on a movie screen is so tampered with and so uh, digitally tweet that it, it's it's not reality well it's the same thing with with a lot of modern rock music uh which is not to say that there haven't been great rock tunes of the 21st century you know i don't know the killers um mr bright eyes i think is a is an anthem and, and the white stripes and other, and some other groups but a lot of rock doesn't it's sort of like quasi rock i think like it hasn't doesn't quite have the feel of uh led zepp and the stones yeah, you've got a quote from Ariel Pink in here that that I would sort of agree with, and and I actually would vote for Jack White's approach to rock, as opposed to uh, one of these newer bands. I'm not going to mention, um, mostly because <laughs> I can't remember their names, not because of any interest in defending them, but but um, 
Pink, Pink describes his music relationships to pop past as, quote, preserving something that has died, something that's going extinct, and just saying, no, that's all it is for me as a music lover. I like to do the things that I like. And what I like is something that I don't hear. And to me, it's just like when you hear the Marsalis brothers sort of, you know, trying to keep classic Duke Ellington jazz alive, and they're playing the, those instruments and very conscious of the sonics that... Yeah. That, you know, as long as you're that you don't pretend that you're cutting edge and you realize you're doing an archival music, that 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 seems like a more valid approach to me than trying to muddy it up and compete with the Billie Eilish's while still clinging. um, I think I think, yeah, if you look historically at most musics, they have a kind of arc where they, they, you know, they start out kind of, you know, they emerge often um, in this raw, undefined form and then they kind of have their peak of maturity and and uh, experimentation and all the possibilities in the former explored um and then they tr- then they might start kind of fusing with other kinds of genres to sort of keep going a bit longer like jazz did you know jazz had its sort of artistic maturity in the late 40s 50s 60s uh, and then it, then you have the fusion phase where it's combining with funk and rock and other kinds of music world musics um, and then it becomes a kind of museum culture which is what really happened um, to jazz in from the 80s onwards I think and the Mars, you know winter Marsalis was 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 one of the key figures in that and Lincoln Center in New York you know was this power base of this sort of attempt to make jazz into America's classical music uh and uh i think the same thing has kind of happened to rock in a way you know i think uh all the possibilities of it were you know most of them were explored in the 60s 70s and 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 to extent the 80s and then it's increasingly become something that uh has carried on in these sort of classic forms um that are increasingly like uh yeah, like a, a museum in a way. Um, and there's more and more of a history, and there actually are literally rock museums now as well. So um, meanwhile, pop music uh, just keeps evolving. Pop music is less, uh, you know, is less tied to a specific kind of music or or set of instrumentation. It tends to use the latest technology and steal ideas from everywhere and, and, um, and, and tends, tends to be sort of, more and less of a sort of historical sense of itself you know i think you know pop music is whatever's selling really and and people use all the tricks they can come up with technologically to make something that people can't resist buying you know uh and uh that's why you know someone like Billie eilish is sort of using all this technology and processing her voice and doing all kinds of interesting things and it's uh and stealing ideas from trap music and and all over the place and and sounds very now and i want to play our next sample and one of the things i enjoyed about the book as somebody who in the knots was busy uh, with the career and had kind of tuned out of i was still listening to music daily but i wasn't obsessively following it and so when i read your book i learned about a number of artists that were doing interesting innovative things although you know i think you docked all of them for varying degrees of backward lookingness <laughs> but one of the favorites um that you introduced me to was Flying Lotus. And I actually want to play a, a track he recorded after the publication of the book. And this is something with Kendrick Lamar. Flying Lotus featuring Kendrick Lamar, Never Catch Me. Step aside of my mind and you 
fit to my fake, they say that hell is real. Analyze my demise, I say I'm super anxious. Recognize I deprive this fit and then embrace it. Vandalizing these walls only if they can talk. That was Flying Lotus featuring Kendrick Lamar with Never Catch Me from the early part of the teens. And so what do you make of the progression of someone like Flying Lotus and, and the pop scene and, and artistically? And, and, and explain a little bit about who Flying Lotus is and how you place his work in the musical continuum. Well, Flying Lotus is this guy uh, based in L.A. who's part of this sort of um, abstract beat scene that's kind of has some relation to hip hop, but it's kind of going into kind of cosmic zones and it's quite digital sounding but there are jazz influences his i think his great aunt or some relation of his was alice coltrane so it's sort of in the family uh this sort of space jazz cosmic mystical thing um it's using a lot of samples it's using all that digital technology has to offer and it's pulling ideas from everywhere um and there's a there's a club called low in theory in la where a lot of these producers like flying lotus are sort of associated and dj and, and um so it's an interesting scene it's not actually to be honest really to my taste it's uh, but i think that he's a very interesting musician and there's something um uh distinctively 21st century about it the fact that he's pulling from everywhere uh, when i wrote about it and other other journalists other critics have observed the same thing i felt like, like listening to this particular album cosmogrammer uh it was somehow like digital culture rendered as music you know like you could hear hyperlinks in it and you could hear it was almost like listening to music where you know you have all these browsers open you know uh and uh or all these folders on your your browser open at the same time and you know the sense of like too muchness like a kind of digital overload and that sort of somewhat burned out you know nervous frayed nerve endings kind of feeling that we have using all you know technology and and social media and like we're just kind of overstimulated you know there was something about that and i felt like he was in a way he was trying to pull all this stuff together and make it cohere as to show a way that you could navigate the, uh, the information overload. Yeah. One thing about flying Lotus that I found interesting was that this was one of the first modern musicians. I was able to hit my 10 year old, my brother who's 10 years older than me, who's sort of a late boomer and was very into prog rock, but also into a little bit of new wave and, and Bowie and, you know, and that kind of stuff. And flying Lotus was something that I was like, that sounds like old King Crimson in a certain way. And sure enough, <laughs> My big brother liked it. But I also found it interesting that the collaboration with Kendrick Lamar because, uh, you know, Lamar is someone fascinating to me because I see him as sort of a definitive example of the maturation of, of lyrical rap as as an art form. This is obviously a guy who spent his entire life honing his chops mm. and and also working with jazz musicians like Kamasi Washington, unlike, say, you know, a 90s group like Tribe Called Quest that would be sampling all of their dad's great jazz records mm. and stuff they found in, in other crates. But but Lamar's actually interacting with, you know, these jazz musicians who've kept the torch alive. And, uh, you know, I've been reading about the London jazz scene. So it does seem like 
you're right. Like the, these these po- there are people keeping the torch lit for these different scenes, and and they're they're interacting and interacting with people like Flying Lotus, like like you say, are very 21st century. Because when I was reading your book, and and these artists were new to me, through my own laziness and indifference and not having kept up, I was ex- and and you were kind of chiding them for being a little retro and then when i heard them to me they sounded oh this sounds much more up to date than i had imagined you know i was especially and we'll get to cornelius later but when you were i, w- uh, I wouldn't describe flying lotus as retro i mean he's he's i think he refl- reflects this sort of um thing i mentioned of a temporality where you know all of the past is available to you in this digital culture because of file sharing and youtube and and streaming and so it's like you know a thousand influences from the past from the archives are entering the music but it's also very modern in the way it's put together and the overall feel of it this digital feel uh you mentioned i do like kendrick lamar but i have to say i find the real future edge in hip-hop to my ears is actually the stuff that is the opposite, which is the mumble trap. rap. Well, it's trap. trap, mumble rap and yeah. trap, because that's, and what I think is interesting is that it's actually broken with this tradition of the MC lyricism tradition, you know, that goes from Rakim through Jay-Z to Kendrick Lamar as the torch holder, as you say, he's holding the torch. This it's much more about the texture of the voice and this processing. So for me, the futurists of of the 21st century rap scene are well future you know he's called future which endears me to him uh, him to me immensely at, for a start and migos and young thug and and playboy carty all these people who are kind of interfacing with autotune and becoming like cyborg beings you know it's like the it's the voice they they're rapping live in the studio with the effect coming through their ears they can hear their voice being processed through headphones as they're rapping so they've learned to push the effect in all these ways you know it's not added on after the event like a a lot of pop records are auto-tuned and and digitally processed once the singer has left the studio to do their business because they have so many things they have to do the rapper is doing it in real time and so there is actually funnily enough a kind of improvisational and jazz-like quality to the way they are working with this technology but it's it's sort of cyborg. It's cyborg. You know, it's ma- it's the man machine interface. You know, that is makes it so interesting. I think. And I've uh, I agree with you completely. The the mobile rapper, the future. That's very much like the punk rockers reclaiming the guitar for anybody who could play three chords, as opposed to somebody who spent you know their life trying to become Steve Howe and learning every scale and every key. And and one one sort of guidepost I use is. I'm sort of randomly friends with a lot of middle-aged African-American academics. And whenever I see them uh, gathering together to condemn a young artist, <laughs> I always go and check them out. Kodak Black has become my favorite of that scene because he, he pushes all of their buttons uh, <laughs> and, and is uh, you know uh, morally reprehensible in, in 80 different ways I can't argue with. But I do find the, the music compelling. And so, yeah, I mean, in a way for the scope of my project, which started with, you know, interviewing Ed Ward at length about the history of rock and roll in the forties and how it came about. And then talking to Elijah Wald about how, you know, that whole process kind of ended to some degree with the Beatles and Bob Dylan and and the invention of studio rock and self-contained bands. And I had kind of hoped 10 years ago or was sort of thinking that, that the future might be just sort of a, a sifting through the rubble and that there wouldn't be enough new powerful technological advances for these truly innovative things like i was sort of seeing like hip-hop and electronic dance music as the last two 
truly great new music and that this was this chain that went from ragtime in the 1890s to EDM in the 1990s and it was kind of over but I'm afraid that that was a bit of an illusion uh, that a 40 or 50 year old man is prone to <laughs> <laughs> thinking that the kids aren't well, gonna... it, it doesn't feel like there has been a, a musical technological invention quite as seismic as you know the the, the synthesizer the drum machine and sampling i think autotune and 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 there are other pitch correction technologies um uh like melodyne which is called a vocal design uh technology where you can actually design a vocal you can sculpt it and you can almost you can almost make a, a voice that doesn't really exist it does say it doesn't exist in real life with, you know without the help of this technology i think that has been one of the defining zones of um 21st century where we will look back and say oh that was that the sound of that era was this where the voices started to seem hyper real and kind of like very unnatural but sort of compelling at the same time it's what what interests me is that that the voice and technological things done with the voice has become a field of action that is cross genre. Like you get it in experimental music, but you also get it in the most mainstream music, the Billie Eilish is and the trap and mumble rap. And you get it in dancehall reggae and Afro beats and all kinds of um, very popular street oriented dance stars of music all around the world um you know morocco you have you have this crazy auto-tune that's really pushed to limits and it has become a generational marker as well like as you say the older people generally i mean i'm trying really hard to keep up with it uh but uh you know older people generally have an instinctive gut revulsion to the sound of auto-tune whereas for people like my kids it's just normality it's just that's what a voice that's what emotion sounds like it's sort of doing to singers what sampling did to instrumentalists where it allows people who have limited talent gifts and technical gifts to still express themselves to the human voice much the way sampling lets somebody like q-tip who was not a trained musician play with the whole back catalog of jazz i think it does but i think the funny thing is it's also created a new kind of virtuosity that isn't about being able to hit a note uh perfectly in tune but about you know like someone like young thug i mean i if you gave me an auto tune i couldn't do what young thug does he's like doing really strange things with and against the technology using his voice uh and you and you can sit in and there's and there's you know there's so much trap out there and the good stuff is very apparent you know the people who are actually doing interesting things with the technology so i think it's right that it, it you don't it's a bit like punk in that you know you don't have to master your instrument um before you can make an interesting record but i think in a funny sort of way a, a new kind of skill or proficiency or or at least creativity has emerged with this technology and and one one new wrinkle technically uh i think is soundcloud where people like little nas x are actually able to shop for beats online and they're sort of a crowdsourcing of beats you know if you're a beat maker you can make a bunch of beats and put them online and then if you're a rapper or a singer you can look for shop for beats and and pay a fee and and create something new uh like old town road which you know was the first pop song you know that that 
broke through to mainstream consciousness and that I could actually talk to with my 50 and 60 something brothers at Thanksgiving. And they had some vague familiarity that it happened. Whereas for most of the past 20 years, you know, I, I, have serious radio and I've been making sort of a conscious effort because of this project to listen to the radio channel from now and the, the station that plays the, the pop hits of the knots. And, you know, I was, I was mm. looking at some YouTube video that was showing the, the best selling artists for each year from 69 to 2019. And, and I hadn't heard of like six people in the knots that were absolutely, you know, the biggest sellers there literally had never heard the name Florida. And, and, you know, and so I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, it seems uh-huh. like it takes a bit of an effort to carve out what's going on in the in the pop scene in a way that, you know, you couldn't get away from something like Susu Studio in the 80s um, mm. to save your life. What do you think of that aspect of? Yeah, it does seem like, I mean, there is still a monoculture. There's, you know, there's a mainstream. It's kind of shriveled a bit down to just a few names that everyone knows. And there's a lot of these sort of... Uh, I don't know what you could call them, side streams, you know, like a lot of uh, margins that are kind of quite substantial. But, you know, if you're involved in it um, and then you go to like, a, you know, yeah, Thanksgiving dinner or a party and you mention what you're into, the people will just look at you blankly. There doesn't seem to be as many common references. I think the thing that's still the common reference uh, that everyone is engaged with is, well, politics, I suppose, is one thing and then maybe tv uh, to some extent although we're getting to the point where there's too much tv now and the and you can have a conversation with someone uh, and and none of you you're not watching any programs in common you know you're just like there's just so many options with the streamers at the moment yeah i've heard that and now and bringing up streaming that was one technology of, of music distribution you know you argue in the book that that the iPod was the biggest musical development of the knots rather than any you know musician driven genre it was the fact that suddenly people had this control and all this music at their hands and you could have a cl- iPod classic and have 60,000 tracks or something in there and put it on shuffle in this very new way of of interacting with music but it seems to me that the iPod has already become well it's true the iPod's it's already like the fax machine or a silent movie or radio serials you know where you have this beautiful art form that has this very short life what do you think of the transition from mp3 and shuffle to streaming um it is interesting yeah i mean i have a i have a little pink uh ipod and i when i bring it out now on a plane or wherever i do feel a bit like how i felt when i i kept using a walkman really long into the quite a way into the 21st century um and towards the end of my using it you did feel kind of weird like bringing this antique out with the clattery you know the cassettes would would clatter on 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 the fold-out tray on your air, airplane seat and uh people look around you like you're still using a walkman um and, and so i feel now now that i bring out my ipod i do feel a bit like a creature from another era it is interesting like like um mp3s i think were the last vestige of music ownership and now it's very much about kind of renting music or or you know if you don't actually subscribe to spotify or something like it you you're listening to it as a sort of personalized radio station you know the adverts come in uh interrupting you know the album which can be really awful like say you're listening to as i did the other day miles davis is in a silent way this masterpiece of spiritual music and then then in between the journey through into cosmic 
wonderness um you know an advert for a car interrupts it you know it's kind of spoils the vibe that's bit. the kind of thing that'll get you to pony up your 9.99 a month right there yeah um and and if it wasn't for my wife's periodic sweeps of our credit card bills i would be subscribing to virtually every streaming service because yes. of impulse decisions but i do find I, I want i've got some other things in the book i want to get to but i i, I do want to say i find it ominous the amount of control and the pure cure poor curation you know i just saw somebody on twitter sharing a spotify image grab celebrating the seventh anniversary of the release of the beatles love me do in 2012 and you're just kind of like you know what the heck is uh, this I saw the same thing how funny <laughs> uh, and and you know the universal music fire that we're just finding out about that apparently yeah. destroyed 500,000 master tapes and and you know there was an incident of a pretty obscure band called power bottom that had some sort of Me Too issue and was removed from the streaming services. And I don't know anything about the band or the merits of their music, but I found that kind of chilling that they could just be erased with the snap yeah. of a finger. And and it's definitely know. got some, you know, there are things like, for instance, I don't think you can search through um, Spotify by label, you know, and labels were a very, you know, important part of music culture and, and even uh, still are to some extent. But, you know, the whole idea of a label having a vibe and an aura and a certain kind of sensibility and you might, you know, certain music fans would like to listen to all the releases on a particular label, uh, perhaps even in sequence. And I don't think that's something you can do. And there's a lack of context, you know, there's a, there's a Spotify is a giant decontextualizing machine in a way and and it, it does have that atemporal effect you know where where you um but i suppose people make playlists and they you know they 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 make different kind of threads running through music and you can you can let the algorithm guide you in certain ways but uh yeah i, I find it very strange using spotify because uh, it's just too much. It's just, it's like, I find I make these enormous playlists uh, of a uh, of a particular artist or a genre, and then and then I never listen to them. And it's like a sort of weird, neurotic attempt to control this flux, you know, and, and create these sort of structures for navigating it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly. It, it, there's an irresistible logic to using them, and and uh, off, you know, off. I own often. I I just uh, you know even when I own the record, I, I don't want to go and look for the CD or the vinyl and put it on. I'll just go on Spotify or YouTube and play it like that. You know. And even though we haven't covered a fraction of the stuff about the 2010s and 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 the arguments in your book, there was two sections of the book that that we had discussed discussing before the interview, and and you said that not many people had that had interviewed you about the book brought him up, but I, I, I have to, especially with in the context of the show, so many listeners who are interested in music from the forties and thirties and even the teens or twenties. And you talk in the book, a good section of the book, the second section of the book is about retro trends historically. So not just our current era of, of, you know, groups like the white stripes or Amy Winehouse who look back. And I guess that's the knots now it's no longer a current era. Um, but also things like the rockabilly revival in the 60s and the long life of fascination with 50s. You know, there's mm. 60s rockabilly revivalists, there's 70s rockabilly revivalists with the cramps, you get, you know, sort of a post-punk rockabilly revivalist. And that has continued. I mean, there are still new bands doing wrinkles on rockabilly. But I actually wanted to talk about trad jazz, which you sort of pick up as 
kind of the first of these backward-looking moments. It's the first one that I'm aware of, and, and, and it interests me that it was a revival that occurred before the rock and roll era as well. Yeah, basically what happened was, um, you know, jazz in its evolution had kind of gone in two directions, you know, swing bands and then bebop. And a bunch of people, uh, particularly in the UK, it was elsewhere as well, but particularly in the UK were like, they didn't like either direction. They found the swing music was a bit bland and the bebop was just too abstruse and cerebral for them. And they what they liked was the dance energy of, of hot jazz, of you know, the original New Orleans 1920s uh, music. And so they started this mo- movement um, called, uh, got came to be called trad jazz. Um, and it was very much like, you know, we want the dance energy, you know, and uh, initially, I didn't, never knew much about trad jazz, and I actually used it as a shorthand insult to describe retro rock bands. You know, I said they were like trad jazz. But when I started researching it, I thought, oh, actually, this is really interesting because, the, you know, the post-war years in Britain were pretty depressing times. There was still rationing. Not just, the wartime rationing actually continued well into the 50s because the country was in such a dire state economically after the war it was very drab and 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 you know there were lots of bombed buildings that had to be rebuilt and and just about the only fun available was the trad jazz scene people would go crazy to this music like you know live it was live bands playing new orleans style or every you know they were like usually middle class uh white guys uh in their 30s or 40s playing the music um but the audiences were quite young it was very popular with students um and people would get drunk there was a little bit of even before rock and roll there was a little bit of pot smoking would go on uh, if you were really bohemian it was a sort of bohemian scene and what really struck me was they used the word rave like they would have talk about having an all-night rave or ravers and i was involved in the 90s rave scene and so i was like wow this word has a longer history than I thought. And this music in the 50s, Britain, had the same function. People wanted to go crazy. They wanted to go mental and release all their tensions and and uh, and have this wild, ecstatic time. And, and the, music, the music they used was was this New Orleans-style music. Of, uh, and, and I want to play Johnson. a snippet before Steph strangles me for dragging out, not introducing my song snippet on time. But And this is... <laughs> The Temperance 7, with You're Driving Me Crazy, which went to number one on the UK charts in 1961. Uh, footnote, produced by George Martin before he met up with the Beatles. The Temperance 7, You're Driving Me Crazy. And that was you're driving me, tra- you're driving me crazy by the Temperance Seven, the UK number one in 1961. Despite the fact that they were consciously aiming, I think they dressed uh, like 20s jazz heads, like flappers. The the guy, whoever the guys were that were with flappers, these guys tried to dress <laughs> like the, that kind well, of guy. Who and then were the male flappers. So yeah, there should have been a term for the male I, I, guys. <laughs> gangsters, I guess, is what you would associate with that scene. But it was yeah, the the the, the I think this this is a total sideline. But the historic 
historical important thing about flappers was the first time young women were coming out and cutting loose unescorted. So it was a, it was an interesting scene. It was you know there was and there was rumors of cocaine you know and they did crazy dancing. It was kind of the rave music of of the nineteen twenties uh, that jazz scene. Absolutely, and 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 also in that section, second section of the book where you talk about the past, another element that you really hit on is sort of the reactionary nature of punk and how a big part, I think a second stream of English punk, you know, in addition to the American influences like the Velvet Underground and the Stooges and the New York Dolls and the sort of history of punk that David Bowie had codified through his various efforts, there's also this pub rock angle that that Mm -hmm. is epitomized to me by Dr. Feelgood, which is a group I didn't get to see or hear until the 90s. I had sort of heard of them, but it wasn't Mm -hmm. until MP3s were coming around and YouTube and and I'd never thought to check out Dr. Feelgood because I was just like, oh, retro rock. I heard Brinsley Schwartz mm-hmm. and Ducks Deluxe. That stuff's boring. I don't need it. But then when you see uh, Wilco Johnson on the guitarist from Dr. Feelgood playing, it looks just so like exciting. Yeah. the guitarist from Gang of Four stole his whole act from, from Wilco. Yeah, he developed a particular style of rhythm guitar where he played using – uh, his fingernails, which must have been like like you know as hard as 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 diamond or something you know like, um, and, and it's an incredibly exciting driving sort of you know it's like a motorized kind of revved up rhythm guitar thing. There's a clip you can find on YouTube from a, a North of England TV show where they're doing this song. She does it right, and it's just so exciting. Wilco Johnson is like. It looks like he's speeding off out of his head and he's like uh, really attacking the mic- microphone singing and, and Wilco is like this frenzied robot, you know, moving across the stage. And uh, and then the audience are just going mental to it. And uh, yeah, they were, I think they were a very important band, Dr. Fieldwood. They, they definitely paved the way for punk uh, in lots of ways um, just because it was so aggressively, it was all rooted in, you know, hard urban blues music and john lee hooker and things like that but it but and the animals as well i think and and but they really kind of gave it this extra aggressive intensity that uh, inspired a lot of the the punk groups and and that's a, another point i want to get to is is that you know punk is often looked back on as this beginning of a renewal of avant-garde influences in pop music, especially in Britain, you know, as a day zero event when the Sex Pistols play at the 100 Club mm-hmm. and everything before it is suddenly old and, and, and this whole future beckons. But the Sex Pistols themselves, and they were knocked for this at the time, you know, S- Steve Jones is essentially playing Chuck Berry licks recycled by way of Johnny Thunders and mm-hmm. James Williamson. And punk to me, like looking back on it, it's sort of like mumble rap is that same sort of fourth stage of hip-hop now in the way that punk was sort of the last new thing in rock and roll, but it wasn't truly a new movement the way, you know, the, the real innovation was happening in, in the Bronx, you know, uh, yeah. in 1974, you know. Yeah, and, I mean, with that chapter, I, I wanted to do not exactly a counterfactual, but like a whole different way of looking at punk where you, where you sort of looked at how so many of the people involved in it were actually looking backwards and they were very, they didn't think a revolution was going to happen. They were, they were mournful that something had gone, you know, and that applies to whether it's 
Lester Bangs and Lenny Kay looking back to garage punk of the mid 60s. Um, Malcolm McLaren, you know, the Sex Pistols manager, was obsessed with 50s rock and roll and had like a, in his clothes shop, had a jukebox that was all like Eddie Cochran songs. Um, the New York Dolls had this whole thing that was like based around the girl groups and the, it was like a blend of the Shangri La's and the Stone Roses. Uh, with a bit of New York drag culture sort of thrown into it as well. Rolling uh, Stones, not Stone Roses, I got it correct. Oh, not Stone Roses, the Rolling Stones. How <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. Well, there you go. That's the yeah, temporal thing. It's all blurring yeah. into this mush of of, of music history. Um, so, um, and yeah, a lot. So I thought it'd be fun to look at it or interesting to look at punk in this way where it just took a long time to come in that people were talking about punk from about 1970 onwards. Um, and, 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 and they're very much feeling like they were holding the torch for something that had kind of gone and they didn't have any sense that there was going to be a revolution coming out of it. And in fact, I think the revolution actually happened, uh, I would say this being British, but when it with what happened in Britain, uh, and it's partly to do with the clothes and the graphic language of punk and the record sleeves and the kind of things people sang about, like the Clash singing about high-rise apartment blocks and unemployment. It was more that element, the content and the styling and the packaging and framing and the ideology, than the actual sound itself that was was new, you know. Um, and then, then, then the whole combination then erupts into post-punk which i wrote about in my book rip it up and start again but i think and we'd love to have fun- you back on to discuss that by the way yeah and and you know so the funny thing is if you look at the uh, uh, the people who the architects of punk a lot of them are these sort of record collectors and fan you know nost- fanzine editors are very embittered about the direction music's gone in the 70s and they're all kind of nostalgic and they're all complaining about the the state of the present and and um uh, it's funny, they almost back into, they're kind of, they back into the future and back into the revolution, uh, walking backwards with their eyes, looking, you know, nostalgically at these lost golden ages. You know, the, uh, the, the Sex Pistols were a fantastic group, but they had a lot of cover songs. They covered uh, Chuck Berry and, and uh, The Who and, and various other mod songs, you know. So there's this funny sort of um, nostalgia element within punk they always stumble into a kind of cultural explosion. And let's hear Dr. Feelgood. She does it right from 1975. Dr. Feelgood, she does it right, pre-punk. And you can hear, virtually hear the amphetamine chewing uh, and lip-smacking going on with those guys <laughs> <laughs> wired to the gills, clearly. And and we already covered Dr. Feelgood, so to, to, to wrap things up, like, basically, how much do you feel like the retromania has passed? Have we gotten over the fever, or is this just a new reality of atemporality that we're going to have to deal with for the foreseeable future? I think a lot of the things uh, that I write about in the book are still going on, Um, and then there are new developments that that I I think I speculate in the book very briefly about the idea that actors could be, uh, or singers' voices could be digitally 
reconstituted into a kind of program so they could sing new songs. And we've got, you know, this really dark, uh, Black Mirror sci-fi scenario where James Dean has been turned into some kind of mega algorithm or something and they're going to have james dean playing a new role in a new movie saying new lines it's not that they're going to splice old footage of him or outtakes from the three movies that he actually made and somehow use it which is that had already happened you know like audrey hepburn being used in a tv advert advertisement i think actually with acdc or van halen on the soundtrack which seems a really offensive thing to do to audrey hepburn <laughs> but no this is actually new performances Based, somehow they've drawn his facial mannerisms and his vocal qualities and his and they've created a kind of CGI version of James Dean. And I think there's going to be more and more of that and they'll do it to voices as well. And another thing is hologram tours where you have zombie pop stars treading the boards. So these are new frontiers of retro culture and new ways for the dead, you know, the, the dead to oppress the living and the old to oppress the young you can't get more old than someone who's actually dead so yes. <laughs> it's like it's kind of eerie and disturbing and it's very black mirror it's very like what kind of world are we in you know contracts will now future contracts with stars will now have clauses about well, what about the posthumous use of your image and your voice and and you know we want we want you know people will be able to sell the rights to themselves in perpetuity uh that will you know create a revenue stream for their descendants you know or whoever they leave the money to in their will but that leaves that opens up all kinds of ethical questions about you know people being in things they don't want to be in the pirating of performers to use them in porn you know is a possibility that you, you could have someone used in all kinds of contexts they wouldn't have approved of and so that's sort of like some sci-fi it's sort of simultaneously incredibly futuristic and disturbing yet also oh, retro you know retro to the extreme and so i think those things indicate we're still in a retromania age but i feel i personally as a just purely as a pop fan i feel like there's been more music that feels very now you know uh from the mumble rappers to billy eilish to you know various other things going on uh, yeah so I, i'm not as as gloomy I, I was a real gloomy sod when i when i wrote uh retromania because it was sort of peak retro at, at that time and I, and i think the die-off of the boomers which is personally sad over and over again and you know and also sad to lose these artists that people have relationships with but it's also a natural process of the past dying and new generations coming along who don't have that experience with the past and don't think van halen is essential or immortal and are free to create their own world so simon reynolds it's been great discussing retromania a book that's meant a lot to me over the past uh 10 years now amazingly enough and and hope we can have you back to talk about electronic dance music and and post-punk and glam sometime yeah that would be great thanks thanks for the conversation it was fun excellent thank you Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate will be back next week with Buck Owens biographer Randy Poe to talk about Buck, the Bakersfield sound, its influence on the Beatles, and the best businessman in country music history. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Oh, <laughs> oh,
Retromania, Pop Culture's Addiction to Its Own Past, is published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. Thank you.